from Leviticus 19. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord, your God. Do not pervert justice. Do not show partiality to the poor or favoritism to the great, but judge your neighbor fairly. From Isaiah 10. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Our New Testament reading is from Luke 20. While all the people were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, Beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. This is the word of the Lord. Franklin, right? In addition to being uh, on a first name connection with the $100 bill, he's the only one to have authored all three founding documents of America. He invented the lightning rod, he invented the bifocals, he founded a university, and oh, he's the only one who was able to secure the support of an entire nation of France during the American Revolution. Can you imagine his LinkedIn profile? But I still think being on a $100 bill probably beats that. You know, uh, he's known for the saying, there is nothing certain in, the, in life except death and taxes. And though other British authors were actually the first to come up with that phrase, uh, he is the one who popularized it because of his prominence. And it's since been recorded many times, probably mostly at funerals and at tax time. You can't avoid either of those. 
But today I propose a revision to that, to the statement that there is nothing certain in life except death and taxes and worship. All of these things are inevitable. See, try as we might, we cannot avoid death. Try as we might, we cannot avoid uh, taxes. And try as we might, we can't avoid worshiping something. We're all wired to worship something. For some of us, worship is organized in liturgy or religion. For others, worship is expressed in our opposition to religion. But worship happens for everyone. Worship expresses what we ultimately value. And often what we worship is revealed in how we live our lives until we die. And often what we worship is revealed in how we spend our money and what we think about the taxes that are taken from us. And all these things are certain. Death and taxes and worship. Death and taxes and worship. So park that for a moment here. We're a few weeks into the Just Relationships and the Just World series. And so far, we've been looking at how Scripture informs this idea of reparations as an appropriate response to the legacy of slavery here in America. Reparations involves both relational and spiritual, but also material responses. And if you missed any of those messages, just hop onto our website or our podcast, and you can catch up at your convenience. In the coming weeks, we're going to switch gears a bit and step back a little bit and look at what just relationships look like, look like in economic issues. What does economic justice look like? See, what we spend on as individuals, what we spend on as a society is a reflection of what we truly value. It's a reflection of what we worship. Specifically today, we're going to look at how economic systems might cause unfair burdens on some more than others. So today's texts that Jeannie read for us highlight how God views economic injustice. You see, living in relationship with God is no mere spiritual or theological exercise. Our spiritual practices are deeply connected with our material practices and how we relate to those around us. It's not just about you feeling good about yourself and that your conscience is clear or that you feel that you're good with God. The Christian faith is deeply connected to daily life and how we move about in the world around us. The Leviticus passage reminds us of this principle of gleaning. Now, we don't farm, so we might not recognize it, but in an agrarian economy, the landowners at the time may have had the right to take all that the land provided to them. They were not to, they, you, you, they had the right to take every ounce of that harvest, but God commands them, those with the means, to lay down their rights out of care for their neighbor. That means those with means are to leave some behind for those with less means. And leaving something behind, leaving extras for others benefit, it may seem like irresponsible wastefulness to some of us. It's like, God gave this to me. Why wouldn't I take all that I can? But in God's eyes, this is in fact truly responsible behavior. It's a responsibility to not just yourself, but it reflects a responsibility to care for our most vulnerable neighbors. In Isaiah, the prophet, in Isaiah 10, he expresses God's judgment towards those who hold societal 
and power and make laws to de that deprive the poor of their rights and that they make laws that withhold justice from the oppressed and marginalized. And back then, especially in a patriarchal society where only men could own land. And in an agrarian society back then, where having access to land was, to live off of was essential for your survival. Those who are widows and those who are fatherless, as Isaiah points out, they were the ones with the least societal and the least economic power. And through Isaiah, God reminds those governing that, he would, that they would be held to a higher accountability when they, if they were to add burdens on to those who are most vulnerable. So put these two together, the idea of gleanings in Leviticus and together with God's charge against unjust laws in Isaiah presume two things. The first assumption is that until God is fully uh, ruling over all of creation, there is going to be some form of imbalance between those who have some and those who have less. And that imbalance and that inequity, it probably is not going to be erased fully in this present life. But we can work to mitigate the pernicious effects of that inequity and inequality. And two, those with greater social and cultural power and economic power are not to use that to harm or add unfair burdens on those who are the most vulnerable around us. Those, when we do that, that is anathema to God's vision for a flourishing community of the entire human race. God challenges our attitude to maximize returns for ourselves and for our benefits on our investments and for ourselves alone. These texts introduce the idea that what we might view as irresponsible stewardship, sometimes we might even use, and wastefulness by not maximizing all that God gives to us can actually be a way of God providing. It's God's provision, not just for you, but for our neighbors and those who are most vulnerable. That's what God begins to paint here in Scripture. Don't add unfair burdens on those who can afford it the least. But by the time we get to Jesus' time, we find that the Jewish people still struggle with this idea of unfair burdens. It had crept in from economic and societal realms that Leviticus and Isaiah both speak to uh, respectively, and now had crept into spiritual practice. The unfair burden had crept into worship in the temple. Luke's account of the two, widow's two mites is often used as an example of uh, generous and sacrificial giving, which of course it is. But when we set that little uh, scene in the context of the preceding verses and the uh, verses after in chapters 20 and 21, we discover that more is being said here by Luke, the author of the gospel. The story of the widow is preceded by Jesus' warning to the teachers of the law at the temple. They are concerned about how they appear before others. But the hypocrisy of the, their faith is revealed in how they treat the most vulnerable in their community. And it's easy to gloss over verse 47. You know, when I read it and, until I came to study this, and they said, they devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. These references 
this is a reference to how the teachers of the law uh, at the temple helped manage the affairs of widows and their financial affairs. And as they did so, it seems that they took a large cut for themselves that ate adversely into the assets of the widow. And in light of their pretentious long prayers, that made it the fact that they did this even more grievous. In, place, in a place of worship, in a place of community, in a place that is meant to be trusting, we find that these leaders were adding unfair burdens on the most vulnerable in their community. They were gaining at the expense of those who could afford it the least. So with that warning in mind, Luke then proceeds to highlight this generosity of the widow. She's noted as dropping two mites into the temple treasury. Now, if you take a look at the, kind of what the, the temple looks like in Jerusalem back then, especially the temple treasury was, was a part of the temple and it was the furthest part of the temple that women could go into at the temple. And whoever walked into that area, there were 13 of these funnel-shaped, uh, trumpet-shaped funnel, uh, funnels, funnels made of bronze that entered into offering boxes. They were scattered around that room or that courtyard. And the purpose of that was anyone who entered in the temple would be expected to drop some donations into that temple treasury that was there to help uh, beautify the temple. And the idea was, you know, you would hear what everyone gave because it's made of metal and you hear clink, 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 clink. Those with hope gave a lot, gave more. Those who had gave less, you would hear less clinking. Kind of like a cash box as you get onto the bus. That's how they kept the temple running. That's how people knew how much this widow gave when she entered the temple. What's being described here is, of course, a gift from this widow and everyone participating it, in it, but it's in essentially a form of a tax. You know, a tax can be understood as something that every user pays for the benefit of all uh, of others around you, or it may go towards defraying the costs of whatever it is that needs to be run. In this case, it's a temple. A tax is something that you pay that benefits others. Now, just think about the taxes that you pay. Most of us know about our income and social security tax because we see that in our paychecks. And then there are income taxes and sales taxes and gasoline taxes and property taxes that your state and your city or county collects. And then there's road taxes in the form of tolls. And then there's various surcharges. If you look at your electricity bill and your water bill, right, there's more of these surcharges. And you might think, man, taxes are a burden, right? Yeah? But here's the thing. In a complex and modern society like ours, no single person would want to be responsible for everything that our taxes take care of, like building and maintaining roads, like extracting our own oil and gas for energy and making plastic products that we depend on, like getting rid of our garbage and sewage, cleaning and maintaining land for our recreation, managing the natural resources that we all depend on, paying for our medical expenses, uh, educating ourselves with schools and libraries, defending ourselves from lawlessness, uh, providing health care when we get sick, negotiating peace treaties with our neighbors. And that's on top of doing the work that you need to provide for your, in, for your family. That's what taxes are meant to do. Do you still think taxes are burdensome? 
Now, we may not agree with the amount that we are taxed, and we may not agree with whoever's in power and how they spend the tax funds, but taxes are a certainty in life, just like Benjamin Franklin reminded us. So why talk about taxes in a sermon? You came to church today, right? In the Old Testament, when the law of God was given and a system of tithes and offerings was given to the Israelites through Moses, it was essentially a taxation system. Why? Because at the time, there was no civil governing authority. There was no civil governing structure. Israel was a theocracy. What that means is that God ruled over Israel, and that rule was administered through the priesthood, through the temple system. Yes, there was a religious system outlined by the law given to Moses, but that system served both a spiritual function and a social function. The priests, they would, of course, lead in prayer and in worship, but they would also care for the sick. They would also judge between disputes. They would also write law and interpret law, and they would also care for the poor, care for the vulnerable in the community. See, that goes back even to the 12, uh, when they distributed the land and they entered the land, the 12 tribes of Israel, there was one tribe that did not get any land. That was the tribe of Levi. They were excluded from receiving land because their work was not to work the land to provide for themselves and for their family, but their work was to work in this temple system to serve and perform these functions, both religious and social. So if you think of DC terms, if there was a tribe of Levi right now, the tribe of Levi wouldn't just be pastors and priests working in churches, but the tribe of Levi would be the Congress per people, the senators and the judges and the city council and all the support staff and the federal workers. You guys would all, if you're working, then you'll be part of the tribe of Levi. That depends on taxes. So back then, the tithes were a tenth given by the other tribes to provide for the Levites to perform all these functions. And offerings were given to support the civil and the social goods that this temple and this community provided. The tithing and offering system was essentially a taxation system to one, recognize and uh, worship and uh, express gratitude towards God. But two, to provide a public benefit and a religious good for the benefit of the community. So, and depending if you look at it, depending how you calculate it back then, you would tithe and offer maybe 20 to 25% annually of your income. And that's before free will offerings were given out of generosity and gratitude. Okay, everyone following so far? Taxes and tithes and offerings. Now back to the widow and her two mites. Essentially, she was paying and participating in a tax structure imposed by the teachers of the law to support the functioning of this temple. And again, taxes aren't just what the government expects of you, but they are what any authority, whether it's a legal authority or a spiritual authority or a socially uh, regulated authority. In the case of a widow, the teachers of the law seem to have no qualms collecting the last two coins to her name in order for her to participate in worship. This temple treasury tax placed an unfair burden on those who could afford it the least. And this was happening in a place of worship. These leaders were to care for the most vulnerable, but they were using this system to take advantage of the most vulnerable. 
And this particular tax structure made it easy for the wealthy to give without sacrificing much, and they would benefit by getting respect from others because everyone would hear how many coins they drop into the bank, right into the offering box. But this widow, who could afford it at the least, had to give all that she had to survive on. Taxes are burdensome. We just think that taxes are burdensome to us because we don't like to pay them. But we don't think of how taxes are burdensome on those, whether uh, they are legally, spiritually, or socially enforced, whether they are burdensome to others. Now, whether this tax is demanded by a government or by a, a church or by uh, a company or by compulsion by a spiritual leader or peer pressure, any financial expectation that places an unfair burden on those who can least afford it goes against God's intent for humans that are to live in relationship with one another. So, as we think about the kinds of policies and the politicians and, the, that, and governments and what they propose, or even the approaches of administrators of schools and libraries and natural resources and pension funds and health care, whoever's making those kinds of decisions and they're taking funds for that, perhaps the question to ask is not just whether the fees and these taxes they seem fair to us. It's not just the only question to ask, but whether it's fair to those who are least able to afford them. That kind of changes our perspective on taxes, doesn't it? You know, as we've been thinking about right relationships in a just world through this series, the kind of justice that Scripture describes is one that isn't just about punishing evildoers and oppressors and that the oppressed are vindicated. That's part of a just world that God comes to build. But justice is much more than that. The living God of Scripture unveils justice as a different way of living and moving about in the world that leads to the flourishing of all. And the way we get there is through relating rightly to the living God. At least that's the vision that Scripture paints for us. Okay, back to you know, the Benjamin Franklin quote, nothing can be certain except death and taxes and worship. Ultimately, these scenes in Luke's gospel reveal what people actually worship. You know, the, all the characters in the story might consider themselves to be faithful Jews, faithful worshipers of God, and these scenes are all taking place in the temple, in a church where worship takes place. We find that there are actually multiple objects of worship being revealed here. The scenes are a commentary on what humans value. We find that the teachers of the law, they measure their value by the length of their robes, by the flattering greetings that they receive in public, by the places of honor that they get to sit in at church and in meals. The object of worship for them, we find, is actually not really God, but it's themselves. They worship their reputation before others. That's their true object of worship. But it's also revealed in how they use their resources. You see there, they have positional power, they have legal skills, and they use those skills to take advantage of those who have no voice and, they, and those who have no resources for themselves, like the widow here. How the teacher of the law uses their resources, how they use their knowledge and their wealth and their status reveals or what or who actually they worship. They worship 
themselves. In verses 5 and 6, it describes a follow-up conversation. The disciples know how all the gifts to the temple have resulted in such a beautiful temple. They marvel at the beauty of things built by human hands. And in this case, the beautiful building is intended to facilitate worship of the living God. And that must be worthwhile then, right? But Jesus is neither impressed by the selfish hypocrisy of the teachers of the law, nor is he impressed by the beauty of human ingenuity. Instead, in verses 3 to 4, he directs their attention to the actions of this widow. And perhaps in spite of being compelled to do so by this spiritualized taxation system, her actions and how she used her limited resources reveal her true object of worship. The widow's object of worship isn't her reputation. In fact, we don't even get to know her name. It's not the work of her hands, but we find it's the object of her heart. It's obedience and gratitude towards the living God. There's something else that we find that Jesus does in this text. He doesn't just point out that the widow's example is noteworthy and worth following. In verse 6, he seems to disregard the temple that the disciples so admire. He disregards this place of worship and the related taxation system that the teachers of the law all seem to benefit from and enjoy so much. In Jesus' mind, this system and this institution, it will not last. It's going to fall down. And we find that Jesus is right. In AD 70, just about 30, 40 years later, the physical temple in Jerusalem was destroyed when Jerusalem was invaded. But Jesus is also saying more than that fall of the temple. You see, in another gospel, in John chapter 2, Jesus points out that the temple is good. In another conversation with the Jews, that everything that the temple stood for, everything that the temple symbolized to the Jewish faith is going to come down, and he is going to rebuild it in three days. His disciples don't realize until after the fact that the temple he is referring to isn't the temple that they're standing in, but it's a temple that they're standing next to, the very body of Jesus. Jesus will certainly die. And Jesus certainly will give something for the public benefit. Except he doesn't give a 10% tithe. He doesn't give 20 to 25% of his income. He doesn't even give 50% of his income. Jesus gives 100% of himself so that all would benefit. Jesus taxes himself completely and empties himself for the good of all. Jesus does so with absolute certainty to express the glorious worth of the living God, whom he calls Abba Father. Jesus carries a burden. He carries a burden that's most unfair to him. Though he doesn't deserve it, he goes to the cross to carry the burden of our guilt and our shame for the ways that we fail to love God, for the ways that we fail to care for our neighbor, and ultimately for the ways that we fail to live as God intended for us to live. Nothing is certain in life except death and taxes and worship. We all die. We all pay taxes and give for something, something for the public good. And we all worship 
something. As we move through this life until we ultimately die, what, or should I say who, is really the object of our worship? And how much do we give of ourselves for the good of our neighbor? As you think about the kinds of public leaders and political parties that you might respect and support, as you think about the kinds of policies that resonate with you, I invite you to ask, not just to ask, does what they propose add an unfair burden to me? Does this take away my rights? But to ask, how does what they propose affect those who can least afford it? Those are the ways that we can begin imagining a world that flourishes, not just for ourselves, but for the good of all. May we do so with humility, with kindness, with love and hope, as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. To God's glory.